How many, how many of you here have a sibling, older or younger? There's great things about having siblings, isn't it? I mean, one thing about having siblings growing up is you always have someone you can cast blame upon. Isn't that right? You always, and, and so who's the older sibling? If you, you're older and you got younger. So for you all, you're different than me because I have a, a brother who's five years older than me. So the older sibling... All they had to do was point to the younger sibling and say they did it. And that was it. And then mom and dad would go after them. As a younger sibling, you couldn't do that with the older one. So what you had to do if you were the younger one like me, is I was the baby of the family. So mommy always believed the baby, right? And so I'd always say, well, Rob made me do it. You know, because that's my older brother. So Rob made me do that. So I could cast blame on him. And uh, we're used to casting blame, and I think we learn it, especially if we have brothers and sisters, and how we can do that so we can get away with stuff. But we're also taught it over and over again in movies on how to cast blame and, and how to get away with things or how to make sure that we don't uh, receive what we deserve if we've done something wrong. You think about a movie like The Hobbit. You know, the, the whole premise of the hobbit is the dwarves are bitter and hard-hearted toward the elves because they didn't come to their aid at the beginning of the movie and so they're casting blame that all their misfortune is upon them even jump to the lord of the rings and frodo he blames the ring if this ring wouldn't have come to me then all this misfortune wouldn't be upon me uh think of like movies of star wars when anakin skywalker's coming into darth vader who does he blame his mentor obi-wan kenobi because he turned his love against him. Uh, think about movies like cartoons, like familiar with The Lion King. Scar, cast blame on Simba for his father's death, which led Simba to go out into the wilderness. More recent movies like the Marvel movies. Iron Man, cast blame on Captain America for breaking up the Avengers, or maybe if you're just in a Christmas mood. Remember when Ralphie got caught for saying a cuss word? Did he take the blame? No, oh, my friend taught me that word. And so you hear the friend being beaten over the telephone. Um, one way or another, we've all participated in the blame game. And Genesis reveals that the reason we participate in the blame game is because we all have a sinful nature. If you want to read Genesis chapter 3 later this afternoon, you can see the blame game was given birth when sin came into our, our nature. God comes into the garden. He, in the cool of the day, he's looking for the first man and woman that he created, but they had just disobeyed the word of God. And so he calls out to them, where are you? Not because he didn't know where their physical location was, not because he didn't know what had just happened as he came to the garden. It was asking where they are spiritually because there had been a separation between him and God, between him and them. And, and eventually they come out and they say, you know, we were ashamed because we were naked. Right? So God says, who told you you were naked? And, and so the man speaks up. It's my fault, God. You know what he says? No. What's the very first thing the man does when sinful nature comes upon him? She made me do it. Not only does she blame this woman who the very previous chapter, he'd been praising God. Oh, she's so beautiful. She's flesh and my flesh and bone and my bone, speaking poetry over. Now it's, she made me do it. As a matter of fact, God, you put her here and made me do it. And so not only blames the woman, but then blames God. And so the woman says, yeah, you're right. I made him do it, right? No. It's that, that serpent there, that serpent deceived us and we did it. Of course, the serpent was Satan disguised as he came into God's perfect creation, and he doesn't cast blame because he's proud of what he did. He just ruined God's perfect created order. But since we all wrestle with sin, then we all want to take part in the blame game. It's a part of our nature because we have a sinful nature. Psychologists say that the reason we cast blame is, one, is for self-perseverance. We want people to look more highly on us than we probably deserve. And so we'll continue to cast blame on people or things or situations. Sometimes we cast blame because we want to bring others down to our level. We want them to look just as bad as we did in that moment. Sometimes we cast blame because it's easier to cast blame than taking responsibility for our own action. And so we'll, we'll spread it out and, and we'll let others 
take some of our actions and responsibility. The Bible also reveals that we blame others because of sin, which causes us to lie not only about others, but eventually blame causes us to lie about ourselves and who we are. And so this morning we're, we're in our series, Tell Me a Story of Jesus. We're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 5, as you can see behind me. And our focus this morning is the dangers of the blame game. Uh, let's read our passage and we'll walk through it. <clears throat> and there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roof colonnades, and in these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there. And knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for, for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and since there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple, and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jews, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father's working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come forward, we thank you. You are our defender. You have rescued us. You have pulled us from the darkness into your marvelous light. We praise you because you claim us as your own and your word promises that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from the, your presence and who you are. Lord, you know that we all struggle with the sin inside of us. Your word reveals it, that we are going to do things we know we shouldn't do. And the things we shouldn't do, we're going to do at times. And Lord, you already know that all about us. You know this battle within us. Lord, I come before you now and, and plead for your grace and mercy to be upon this room, that your spirit would fill this place, you would overwhelm us, and your presence would make this place full of who you are, that your word would be opened up as you did to your disciples through the power of your spirit, that every word that comes out of my mouth would be pleasing to you, and that it would be your word spoken to all of our hearts. Father, we want to be a holy and righteous people, set apart for you, for your work. And so I pray this morning you reveal the struggles we have and the dangers of having this struggle. So walk us through your passage. Walk us through your word. Speak to us in the only way you can. Be our shepherd and guide. And I pray that your kingdom and your will would be the only thing done here this morning. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're back in Jerusalem, right? That's what our passage says in verse 1. There's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Just a reminder, last several weeks, months, we've been in the northern region of Galilee. Now, in the Gospel of John, there are five times that Jesus returns to Jerusalem. This is the second of the five times. And almost every time that Jesus returns to Jerusalem, there is a certain festival or feast going on. The last time he was here was the Passover feast. It was in that time where he met with Nicodemus the Pharisee and they had a conversation. You read it in John chapter 3 and one of the most famous verses in all Scripture came out of Jesus' mouth. Well, Jesus now returns to some sort of feast that is going on, but John does not let us know what exactly this feast is, so we're not going to speculate or worry about it. But what we can do with our passage this morning is we can draw or break it down like a play where there's four different scenes. So our scene one is in verses 2 through 9a, and that would be the encounter in healing. Scene two would be the interrogation, would be the latter part of verse 9 into verse 13. Scene three would be the revelation in verse 14. 
And scene four would be the betrayal in verses 15 through 18. So John tells us that Jesus comes to Jerusalem and that in Jerusalem, verse 2, by the sheep gate, a pool in America called Bethesda. The details that John gives us here in this moment would have taken his original audience back to the exact place to say, I know where this happened. I know that place. I know where that lied in the city of Jerusalem. The location itself was in the opening in the north wall of the city. It was a little way west of the north uh, east corner of the city. And as a generational reader, we could say, I know what John's talking about. I've been there. It's debated whether John wrote this gospel before or after the fall of Jerusalem. If he wrote it before, then his readers could have read this account and be like, okay, we can go there. We can go see where this miracle occurred. But the good news for us is even today we could go there. See, in 333 A.D., it was discovered this pool in the old city of Jerusalem where, where, where Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah says the sheep gate was. They discovered two pools with five colonnades. So even today, if we wanted to go to Israel, into Jerusalem, we could go to this exact location and say this is where Jesus had this encounter with this paralyzed man and healed him. We could stand in the very place. I say it because when we read the Bible, I, I hope you find joy and hope and encouragement that what we read here is truth. And it can be backed up. And every time the Bible's been trying to be discredited, it's found out that it's actually accurate. It's actually right. And I know there's some things in here we can wrestle with and we can struggle with, like how did that happen? But God always proves true. And, and I, I, I've never been to Jerusalem, but that would be something I'd want to go. And I want to read this passage as I sat there and I looked around at what was left of the area, I said, Jesus was standing right here in this moment when he did this. This particular location in Jerusalem, though, this is not the tour site it is today. <laughs> you know, when you're going to Jerusalem in Jesus' day, this is not the place you say, I want to go to the, the Pool of Bethesda. I want to go through the Sheep Gate because this is where the invalids is what the... Uh, English Standard Version calls them. It means the sick, the disabled. These are people who are cast out of society. These are people who are deemed unworthy to be around. If you were a Jewish individual, you did not go seek out the Pool of Bethesda by these five colonnades because these people were cut off from the presence of God. They were not deemed worthy to go into the temple. They were outcasts of society. But what do we see the Son of God doing in this very moment? Where does He go first when he comes to the city of God, he goes where the sick are. We don't find him sitting at a table with the religious elite. We don't find him having conversations or cracking jokes with dignitaries. We don't find him going to the temple where the presence of God was believed to dwell first. He goes where the people need him most. He goes to the sick. And he goes there to make them know that even though society has cast them out, even though society looks down on them, that they are known and valuable to Him, and He is God. You may not have noticed, but in verse 4, it's most likely omitted from your passage. So you get to verse 3 where it says paralyzed or lame, and then it goes right into verse 5. Now if you look at it in verse 3, there's usually a notation. Most Bible translations omit verse 4. There's a notation, it's either a number or a letter. And the verse reads this, They were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And so you could take that notation, most likely look down at the bottom of your page in your Bible, and you'll see that notation takes you to where this verse is. Now, the reason this verse is omitted from most Bible translations is because it is not found in the oldest uh, translations we have of the Gospel of John, the earliest manuscripts. And so they've gone back and been able to compare and say, okay, this, this verse isn't here in what we have in the earliest manuscripts. And so at some point in time throughout history, someone was recording the Gospel of John, which meant they were sitting down and they were writing it out by hand. And they came to this particular event in Jesus' ministry and they inserted the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 into the text in order to give future generations an understanding on why all these people are gathered at this pool in, at Bethesda by the Sheep Gate. 
But since it's not in the original, the earliest manuscripts we have, it's taken out because we want the most accurate scripture we can be given. The verse is useful because it gives us some insight in what verse 7 tells us. But since it's not biblically accurate, we should praise God that it's been omitted and given a citation. But what was the pool? According to Jewish tradition, custom, superstition, belief, whatever you want to call it, they believed that an angel would come to this pool and would stir the waters up, and whoever got in first would be healed. And so the people, all these people would be laying around waiting for the water to begin to stir, to begin to have activity, and then it would be a race to the pool, and whoever got in first, they were the lucky winner for the time. Now what has been discovered over time is this particular pool was fed by an underground spring. And so every now and then the spring would bubble up. And so it would make the waters bubble up. But there was this idea and belief, which must have had some background or, 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 or weight to it, that if you got in when the waters bubbled, you could be healed of whatever you had. So obviously somebody at some point in time had been healed when the waters bubbled up and it led to all these people laying around. But we're told there's a man. And he's at this pool and he had been there for 38 years. The passage doesn't imply that the man was born in his particular situation, but something that happened in his life would put him in a weakened state. And the passage tells us that Jesus already knew that he had been there a long time in verse 6. The word knew means Jesus had a deeper understanding, a deeper wisdom of this man's current situation. It is a little verse to let us know of Jesus' supernatural knowledge and wisdom, which is equal with God's supernatural knowledge and wisdom. We've already seen it already in his ministry. When Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees, when Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees said in their hearts, blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God? We know that Jesus revealed this when he went and sat with Matthew, the tax collector, and all his tax collector buddies. And the Pharisees didn't have the nerve to say it to Jesus, so they say to the disciples, why does he eat with such scum? And Jesus already knew what he was saying. They didn't have to say it to him. So Jesus comes to this pool. He comes to this area in Jerusalem. He knows who, the, knows who this man is. He knows his condition. He knows why this man is in the condition that he is. And Jesus comes and asks this man a question. He doesn't come and shrug off this man's belief in whatever power this pool has. He asks him a very straightforward question. Verse 6. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? And this is where we stand when we come to accepting our guilt are accepting to cast blame on others. Do we want to be made well? Do we want to be changed? See, if we answer the question of Jesus, we can answer in two ways. We can take the blame game. And we can point out all the reasons why that can't happen. Give all the excuses on why we can't change, why we can't move away from some sort of habit that we have we know we shouldn't be doing, why we can't stop doing certain things. We can give Jesus all the excuses, but if we're ready to accept the change that Jesus is willing to offer by His power and authority, we answer yes. But do you notice how this man answers? Jesus' question is, do you want to be made well? What, what are your, your options for the answer? Yes or no? It's two options, right? But the man's answer reveals the dangers of the blame game because we can blame our circumstances and our situations. Do you want to do it well? And this is how the man responds. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus' straightforward question, do you want to be made well? Yes or no? And it's an odd statement when it comes to one individual wanting to give another aid. But we can do this ourselves. We can blame our debt because of our income. And we blame it on that rather than our excessive spending. 
We can blame relationship problems and marriage problems on the other individual because they just don't understand where we're coming from, but we don't take the time to understand where they're coming from. We don't listen to them. We don't open our eyes. We don't see that we may actually be part of the problem. We can blame our circumstances and situations, and when we do so, we come blind to what actually is happening and what made those circumstances and situations take place in the first place the first place. The result of blaming circumstances and situations is this, a pity party. This is what the man says to Jesus. Do you want to get well? (laughs) Jesus, I... Oh, he didn't know his name at that time, sorry. I want to get in, but every time I get in, no one helps me, and then when I get close, someone else gets in, and I can't do it. Woe is me. Pity, 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 pity. This is what the man says. Not that he wants to get well, that he wants to remain in a situation where he can blame everything around him from keeping him from what he wants to become. What's interesting about his comment is there's no reason we should believe that this man who was at the pool was alone. Let's just think about this rationally for a second. First off, it was was not typical for individuals to remain in a certain situation, even if they were sick or lame. They usually had friends or family who would carry them to a particular location where they could receive alms, they could receive help, they could be in a place where they could find healing or aid or some sort. So this man probably had people in his life who were helping him out. There's no reason we should think he lived at this pool, but let's just play that hypothetical. Let's say this man lived at the pool. How long had he been here? 38 years. You're telling me for 38 years no one helped this individual at some point in time? For 38 years he went without water or food? No one checked on him? Does that seem logical? But when Jesus comes to offer aid, all he does is want to blame everything else around him. It's not my fault. It's not my doing. It's the situation. It's my circumstances. I think we can turn on the news or we can read the news and we see a rising generation who are living this way. They're blaming their conditions and they're blaming their circumstances. It's one big pity party hoping that someone else gets them out of it. And right now it seems to be the government. The government's going to step in. The government's going to do something that they are, in fact, unwilling to do. And this sort of lifestyle only leads an individual to become stuck and paralyzed just like this man because they're waiting for someone else to join them in the pity party and do the work that they're unwilling to do. At some point in the last 38 years, I'm sure there's at least one person, this man could have said, hey, can you stay here for another 10, 15 minutes, and when that water stirs up, could you just pick me up and throw me in? I'll pay you back, I promise. But I think he liked this situation. He could complain and he could blame and... But if you're living with a heart which blames your job, your school, your living arrangements, your education, or anything else, here's the reality. You're only going to be stuck. You're only going to be paralyzed. And you're only going to hope someone else comes in and fixes the solution that God has given you the ability to fix yourself. The passage, this is the first healing where Jesus heals someone without any evidence of faith. He tells this man, get up, take your bed, and walk in verse 8. And I imagine as Jesus spoke the words, this man felt something different happening in his body. He felt a change. And so what does he do? He gets up, takes his mat, and walks. He had been waiting for someone else to do something for him. And finally, the day had arrived. This brings us to the end of verse 9. Verse 9 says that once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And when we read that, we should go, dump, dump, dump. You want practice? Now that day was the Sabbath. That's, that's what we should get when we're reading this. 
as we're seeing this man is doing something, and John has to insert, that day was the Sabbath. And because we may not understand sabbatical law and sabbatical regulations, we should spend some time. So the Sabbath, there were man-made laws on what was constituted as work. Because the Sabbath was a day of rest. It comes from the creation account. Day seven, God rested from all that He created. And so in the Jewish law, which this man would have been, there were 39 charges or indictments that were written by man to define what constituted as work. So now I have 39 laws that I have to follow so I can make sure I'm actually resting. I don't know about you, but I don't need 39 laws to know, tell me how to rest. But the Jewish people said, we need to do this. So people know what is constituted as work and what doesn't constitute as work. So here's a couple things you could do if we were Jewish people under these written laws. Women, you could have children on the Sabbath. Isn't that a nice law they give for women to do? You don't have to hold it one more day. You just you go ahead and have that baby. If you had a child and it came to the eighth day when they were supposed to be circumcised, adopted into the covenant family of God, they could be circumcised on the Sabbath. Last well, night. Nice. You could help somebody on the Sabbath. You could help somebody. So if, if Mike here was in dire need, his life was in danger, I could do some physical work and I could help Mike get out of this situation. But if Mike could make it to tomorrow, I'll be back. <laughs> Isn't that weird? There were certain... A certain length that you could travel on the Sabbath. Matter of fact, the Bible records it. It's the, the, the Sabbath journey. So you could only walk so far on the Sabbath, which some of us are like, oh, right, I can only exercise so much on the Sabbath. That's, that's a good one, right? There's only certain things you could cook on the Sabbath because some things just require too much work to cook. And it's four crock pots and all that sort of stuff, okay? But one law was... You could only move one ob you couldn't move an object from one place to another because that was work. And you were breaking the Sabbath. And so here is this man for 38 years has been paralyzed by this pool. Man comes up to him and says, You wanted it well? Get up, go. You know, I mean that's what Jesus said. Get up and go. So the man gets up and go, and he goes through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his mat. While all the Jewish people are looking, because oh, that's a no-no. And John says that the Jews, in verse 10, which is John's way of saying the Jewish leaders, pounced on this man. Because they had forgotten what the point of the Sabbath was. The point of the Sabbath isn't to regulate what is work and what's not. The point of the Sabbath is that we find rest in the presence of God and we focus on Him. That's what Sabbath is. And we all should still take Sabbath. We break away from the craziness of life and just rest in God's presence and focus on Him. But the Jews, in verse 10, they see this man walking through the streets, and these are the law writers. These are the law keepers. These are the peers that Jesus had encountered in the northern region of Galilee. And they see this man, and they pounce. And I just picture... An old lady in church pouncing on a kid for acting out. I remember at a church I was at before, there was this little girl, and she was just hopping back and forth between the pews, and her grandma turns around, grabs her by the hand. This is middle sermon, by the way. What are you doing? And she picks her up and pulls her down the middle aisle while the girl is kicking and screaming. It's just, it's just perfect time for that, right? But that's why I picture when these Jews pounce on this man carrying this mat, they're saying, what are you doing? This is not the right time for this. It's the Sabbath. And so they were accusing him of wrongdoing. This man was, in fact, in clear violation of their laws. He was violating their laws, not God's, their laws. And by his action, it was a blatant act of disrespect. And his guilt was all over him. The ceiling is, is frequently compared to another one that happens in the Gospel of John chapter 9. In the Gospel of John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. Guess what day it was? 
Sabbath. Dum, dum, dum. That's right. He was a blind man on the Sabbath. And in John chapter 9, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews, they get a hold of this blind man. And they ask, why can you see? And then they bring in his parents and say, is this really your son? Was he really blind from birth? And their parents are like, uh, ask him. He's of age. So they bring in his friends. Yeah, that's the guy. He was blind. Or they bring in the people who knew where he was begging. So yeah, that's the guy. He was blind. Now he can see. And so they accuse Jesus of working for Satan, to which the blind man looks at them, says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. And the religious leaders were taken back because of this blind man's faith in who Jesus was. And his faith in Jesus outweighed their so-called authority. We come back to John chapter 5. We have a man who does the exact opposite. Instead of giving a testimony, who told you to pick up your mat? Who told you to walk? He doesn't say, look guys, I understand this is out of the norm, but I've been paralyzed for 30 Eight years. I haven't been able to move. And then this guy came and spoke word over me and I was completely changed. And that's why I'm doing this. Because the power of God has come over my life and I've been healed. Is that what he says? He answered, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. Man missed an incredible opportunity to wow the religious leaders and all people who no doubt had been watching this interaction. Instead of pointing to Jesus, he fell back to his blame game ways. And it's another danger of having a blaming heart as we blame someone else. Man's answer wasn't that he was wowed by the grace of God. His answer wasn't that he was wowed by God's healing. He wasn't in awe of God's power. He didn't go and talk about his testimony about 38 years of being paralyzed. And now, look at me now. I mean, I'm a living example of the power of God and the power of God in this man. Instead, he says, it's not my fault. That guy told me to do it. You know, growing up, I used to use that statement a lot. Yeah, I think we all have. It's not my fault. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what was actually going to happen there. I didn't know where they were going. I didn't know they were going to do that. And parents, what did parents used to say when you got caught doing something with your buddies, your girl pals? Well, if they told you to jump off a bridge... My parents stopped asking me that because junior year I did jump off a bridge with my friends. And I was like, well, yeah, I would, actually. I mean, it's kind of fun who went into water. But anyway, we like to blame people. We like to blame things. We like to shed it off. You know, that's what this guy's doing. Look, I'm only breaking the law because that guy told me to do it. And we blame people all the time for our shortcomings. And it wasn't really this guy's shortcomings, he missed an opportunity. But sometimes we may not blame an actual person by name. You ever heard that statement, the devil made me do it? Man, the devil made me do it. That's why I did, that's why I was so stupid. Here's the thing. If, if you're a child of God, the devil can't make you do anything. He has no power over you. Matter of fact, the only way the devil can make you do something is if his demon has possessed you. Otherwise, all the devil can do is persuade you and tempt you. And when we stand before God, we're not going to be able to look at our track record and be like, oh yeah, the devil made me do that and that and that. No. The devil just tempted you. He hooked you and lured you. Jesus just healed this man. And the Bible is very clear that this man did not know who Jesus was. But his man, the man's response was to j- blame Jesus for his current predicament. And what is his predicament? He was living in the blessing of God. It's not my fault. I've been healed. That guy told me to do it. 
And because he had a blaming heart, he was blind to the blessing. He was copying out and said, I'm only doing what I was told. He didn't even know who it was, but here's the thing. When we stand before God one glorious day, and we stand before Him, and all of our records can be laid bare, we are not going to be able to say to God, the government made me do it. That man in authority made me do it. I bow the knee to one Lord and one God, and that is it. And if it contradicts what some man in authority says, so be it. We are going to be held responsible for our actions. But the blaming heart has a danger that it becomes a heart that becomes captive by fear. So the man said what he did because he feared these men more than he feared the power that he had just experienced with Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear over and over again that we are to fear God, have reverence for God over men because God is the one who condemns or saves souls. And so we are to fear Him alone. But as this man points the finger and says, well, I don't know who he was, we move on to our third scene in verse 14. It says, After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Jesus, he <clears throat> said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. There's another passage we easily overlook. Okay, so for 38 years, where was this man? He was by the pool for 38 years. For 38 years, this man was cut off from the temple. He was not allowed to go there. He was deemed unclean by the Jewish people. And this is the very first positive thing we see this man doing the entire passage. Is once he's healed, the first place we're told that he goes is to the temple where the presence of God was believed to dwell. And I imagine him standing there. We should just picture him standing there, taking it all in. And you think in that moment it would all come to him. I'm standing here because God has healed me. He has saved me. Oh, you're so awesome. You're so mighty, God. But Jesus shows up. He finds him. And that wouldn't have been an easy task because there have been like thousands of people at the temple going in and out. But Jesus finds this one guy. He knows where he is. And at some point in their interaction, their conversation in the temple, Jesus reveals who he truly is. That he is Jesus. He is the one that John the Baptist had been speaking of. He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And as soon as this man, who has been healed, in the temple where the presence of God dwells, hears that it is Jesus, he says, praise Jesus, right? Now, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. I can clean my record now. Now I've got a name. And this is the most dangerous part about having a blaming heart. Because when we did done blaming circumstances and situations, and we did done pointing the finger at others, you know the last place we can point finger at? It's God's fault. It's God's fault I did this. This man was quick to heed Jesus' instructions about taking up his mat, but not so quick to heed Jesus' instructions and what he gave him at the end of verse 14. He says, see you are well, meaning see you've been changed. You've been healed. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In John's gospel, sinning is always attributed to being opposed to God or being an enemy of God. Now when this man instructed Jesus to take up his mat and walk, he did it immediately because it benefited him. Ah, it works for me. But now the revelation of who Jesus was, we notice that this man's heart has not been changed. And so he sought to use the information he now has to do what? Benefit himself once again because a blaming heart only seeks self-interest. A heart that blames others cannot love other people the way we're commanded to because it's only about me. It's about me rising to the top. It is about me looking better than others. It is about me looking perfect and them looking bad. So I will blame them for all my circumstances, all my situations. I'll even blame God as long as I come out on top. So he sheds blame to people. He sheds blame to his circumstances. He sheds blame on Jesus. He's been healed, but instead of giving God the glory, he points the finger right at him. I've never heard this rationalization from a sane person. Well, God made me do it. 
But as believers, that should be something we say. Why do you do what you do? God made me do it. Because he deserves all the glory. We're not casting blame. We're giving him glory for hopefully something we've done well. But since this man, nor the religious leader, saw Jesus as God, they couldn't see what was actually happening because a blaming heart is blind to the blessings of God. It's blind. We're so busy pointing the finger that we can't see what God's actually doing in our life. Looking at everybody else's faults or making them look worse than they are. And we can't see how God has been blessing us. So how do we counter this? Well, the passage gives us two ways. First way is recognize our source of blame. Verse 14, Jesus says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It seems to imply that the man's condition before his weakened state, his paralyzed state, was caused by some sort of action which led to that condition. Which would make sense because this man's heart is hard. This man's heart is bitter. This man's heart is blind to the things of God. The Bible tells us that we all sin. And it tells us that we all will wrestle with sin even if we are found in Christ. So this command, sin no more, Jesus isn't telling this man to do something that he is incapable of doing. The only way this man could sin no more is if he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, as the Christ. This is what Jesus is doing. He's giving him an invitation to change completely. To sin no more is to be found completely in Christ. So he's saying, look, you've changed physically. Now let's change spiritually. And he's calling this man to recognize where the blame belongs and accept Jesus as his Savior. So we run into hardship because of sin. Our bodies are plagued with the sinful nature. Sometimes we get sick because of sin. Sometimes we have illnesses because of sin. We ultimately are all going to die because of sin. These bodies are not meant to be permanent. That does not mean if you get sick, it's because you got some sin in your life and God is casting judgment upon you. Or if you run into a misfortune, you have sin and God is casting judgment upon you. We go through horrible things and difficult things in life because sin is in this world. The source of our problem isn't our circumstances. The source of our problem isn't our situation. The source of our problem isn't other people. And it's definitely not God. The source of our problem in this world is sin. And there are people who are going to live out their sinful nature, and it's going to cause heartache upon us. But we're really no different. We just may sin in a different arena. The Bible reveals that sin impacts relationships. Sin impacts situations and circumstances because the end game of sin is to kill, steal, and destroy. In order to counter a blaming heart, to keep us from being bitter with God and closed off to God, we must recognize our own sin. I like that. When you point one finger, you got at least three pointing back at you, right? The Bible says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but not notice the log that is in your own? And I understand that sometimes we get angry and we have bitterness. And sometimes the perception of people and situations causes us to want to shift blame. But what Jesus says to this man is so significant. When we want to cast blame, when we want to judge, we want to ridicule someone and bring them down, give blame to the blameless one. This man ousted Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's ultimately what he did. He, he went and, and blamed Jesus for all the blessings that had just happened in his life that day. That's what a blaming heart does. He wants to shift it. And here's the greatness of Jesus. Jesus can take our blame because he's the blameless one. We can lay everything that we carry at His feet. Matter of fact, He commands us to. To lay everything at His feet. To surrender it to Him. Because the reality is a blaming and unforgiving heart doesn't impact the person. It doesn't impact the circumstance that we're holding against. You know what it impacts? It impacts us. It impacts our hearts. And we sin no more by casting our blame and sin to Jesus who removes and covers our sins completely by His perfection and His righteousness. 
Now when this man cast the blame on Jesus, the Jews were ignited with rage. First is because Jesus commanded another individual to break the Sabbath. But I love Jesus in this moment. And I, and I, I, I just read it over, over, over and over again this week. The God who saves us, the God who loves us, is not afraid to back down. Isn't that awesome? Our God will not back down. He is not threatened by anyone who thinks they're in authority. And Jesus, hearing their complaints in verse 17, and it doesn't even seem like they, they say it to him directly, Jesus answered him, My Father is working until now, and I am working. It's something we can read over real quick, and, but the Jewish leaders understood what he was saying. <clears throat> See, though God created the Sabbath, a bunch of smart, intelligent, theological rabbis, Jewish rabbis, teachers, got together. And they say, okay, how does the Sabbath law work for God? Does God still work on the Sabbath, or does God still rest on the Sabbath? So all these smart intellectual theologians concurred that though the Sabbath is a day of rest, God is not regulated to the Sabbath day of rest. Because if God rested, then all created order would come to cease to exist. So therefore, these smart, intelligent, theological rabbis resolved that God is not breaking the Sabbath when he works throughout creation, because it is for all good. And so Jesus knows this, because he knows all things. And what Jesus wanted this man and the religious leaders and all people to understand is found in verse 17. And it can be read this way. It says, because God is continually working even on the Sabbath, that is why I work. He's very subtly, 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 sub, sub, I don't know the word anymore. He, subtly, 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 unblameable, right, Steve? Um, um. He, he's very subtly just laying it down. Look, you already agreed that God can work on the Sabbath. And because I'm God in the flesh, that's why I'm working on the Sabbath. And so he's trying to reveal himself to them where they are. And you notice the response in verse 18? This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, a blaming heart blinds us to the revelations of God. It blinds us to what God is trying to say in our life because we're too busy looking at other things and pointing the finger. Jesus is revealing himself. But everyone around him wanted to blame. The religious leaders wanted to blame Jesus. The man wanted to blame Jesus. Because blame only leads to self-pity, bitterness, and a hard heart towards the things of God. The question this morning, are we living with a blaming heart? Are we looking out at the world and blaming, oh, well, you know, COVID, you know. Are we pointing the finger? If you're pointing the finger and blaming everybody else, it means you have an unforgiving heart. And I'll say it again, holding on to it doesn't impact them in the same way it is impacting you. It is killing and stealing and destroying your heart and the abundant joy that God wants to give in your heart, and the life that God wants to give you in your heart. So we come before God and say, God, forgive me for blaming others, being blind to the blessing you've already put me in. If you have a blaming heart, I believe we need to come before the Father and ask for forgiveness. See, God has placed us all here for a purpose and for His good will and His good work, and with a blaming heart, we become blinded to that. The beauty of this passage is we can come and we can release it before Him. 
be found in such a way that we sin no more. Here's the other option. You can keep living that way. You can keep being ungrateful. You can keep being blind to grace, blind to blessings, blind to the Word and authority of God in your life if you want to stay with a blaming heart. But the reality of this passage, if you do so, you're heading down a dangerous road because eventually you'll point the finger at God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to know about the blameless one. So we all wrestle with sin. The Bible reveals we're going to continue to wrestle with sin. We're going to continue to fall short of God's holiness and His standards. But God already knows that. And that's why Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life. To die for the sins of the world. They placed Him in a tomb and He rose three days later. And the Bible says this incredible gift allows us to shed our blame of sin upon the perfect righteousness of Christ. And because He died and rose again, He takes all of it and frees us from it. The Bible says, if, if I'm not found in Christ, I am lost and I am destined for hell, separation from God forever. But you're here this morning for God to change that. First, it admits that you're a sinner. You do things in your life you regret. You get angry at people. You get mad at circumstances and situations. That's sin. But you, if you believe in your heart that God died for your sins through Jesus Christ and that He rose again, the Bible says if you believe that to be truth and confess it with your mouth, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, you will be given eternal life. And so we come to this time of invitation where Nick and Bridger are going to come up and lead us in a song. If you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord Savior, if you need to put all your sin upon the blameless one, I'm going to invite you to come. But maybe you're here and you've just been battling with some bitterness and hard-heartedness and just blaming other things. You just come kneel for the Father and say, forgive me. I've been blinded to what you've actually been doing in my life. This time of invitation, I want to pray over us and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, taking care of us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, forgive us when we point the finger. Lord, let us look at our own heart. Let us see the way you've blessed us. Let us see the grace you've bestowed upon us and be in awe of the mercy that we live under. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning and for myself. Don't let us become blind to the miracles you're doing in our life right now. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I ask your Spirit to just grab a hold of their heart in this moment in the name of Jesus Christ and bring them down the aisle that their eternal destination can be saved and that this would be the day of their salvation. Forgive us if we failed you and praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.